Parnaso. So this morning, for those of you who are very alert, you may have noticed that I inverted. <laughs> Somebody did. Ah. <laughs> the shamatha to the afternoon and the four measurables to the morning. I've been thinking about doing that for some time, and lo and behold, it happened. <laughs> I think there's a good, a good rationale when first venturing into meditation, like the very first day, to be focusing on developing one's attention skills, developing the three qualities, because it just makes common sense. And most people recognize they would like to be more relaxed than they are, just getting too much tension. That's easy, an easy sell. And then in terms of just being able to maintain composure, pretty much everybody recognizes, and then clarity. So it's just a really common sensible, commonsensical approach in. At the same time, if one keeps one's values, one's priorities, one's way of life, pretty much everything status quo, and brings in a bit of meditation, a bit of shamatha, a bit of attention training, uh, to make the life go a bit more smoothly. In other words, make samsara a bit more tolerable. Uh, then that's one way to put dharma in the service of samsara, or what's sometimes called spiritual materialism. Right? And there's really nothing wrong with that. I mean, if there's something wrong with you know engaging in explicitly unwholesome types of activity, that's for sure. But leading, you know, right livelihood, decent way of life, more or less ethical, and bringing in a, medit a bit of meditation to less have less stress, less unhappiness, anxiety, depression. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It pretty much entirely misses the point of the Buddhist teachings. But again, there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, the Buddha wasn't there to convert everybody to Buddhism. But if one drenches oneself, like for three weeks or so, in the practice, as much as one can, but in an environment where there's very little, I won't say nothing, but where there's very little from the environment that's kind of rubbing us the wrong way. A little bit, but not a whole lot. It's about as good as you get here. And, there, and But we don't have much that's rubbing us the right way either. That is, not much in the way of entertainment, ways of killing time, and so forth and so on. So a very unbusy environment. When you're in that kind of like a little bit of approximation of a sensory deprivation tank, like that. Then, as many of you reported in your one-on-one -on -one meetings with me, you find that without any external stimulation, your body can be just a sack of discomfort. Without bumping into anything disagreeable, you can just lie down on your back and your body feels like crap, you know? Wow, it can, it can make itself unhappy all by itself. And then the mind, lo and behold, now that there's very little to upset us from the environment of other people insulting us, exploiting, lying and cheating and so forth and so on, as you're just sitting quietly in the chamber of your own mind, you find, oh, wow, my mind can make itself unhappy all by itself with no help. So the mind can be a sack of unhappiness. Two great sacks profoundly intermingled. And of course, it's not just misery, not just discomfort. Some of you find, have found already in three weeks, a bit of sense of 
bit of peace of mind, a bit of comfort, a bit of relaxation. Some have spoken little spikes of bliss coming up, clarity coming up. And that's with really without anything coming in from outside either. You're not getting an infusion of something, you know. Not even infusing visualizations or something really cool from outside, but more just staying within your container and finding within the container of your body-mind complex that, oh, it looks like it's really possible maybe your mind has everything within it needed to find bliss without external stimulation, let alone luminosity and non-conceptuality. And so it kind of brings, as they say in, in, in American slang, the, the chickens come home to roost. That is, when we're out in the world engaging with situations, people, and so forth and so on, it's so easy to flick the finger out. She really makes me happy. He really pisses me off. That really makes me unhappy. This makes me really happy. And then we're kind of finding all kinds of things around us. Make me happy, unhappy, boring, happy, happy, boring, boring, boring. And so we can. it's really easy when we're very much engaged to having the sense that our ups and downs are because of what's happening to us. Here there's hardly anything happening to us. I mean, you're kind of obliged to hang out with me for two hours a day. But it is, after all, a small percentage of the day. You get over it, you know. The recovery time should be pretty quick. And besides that, you're on your own. Three good meals a day, an air-conditioned room. I mean, really, it's not that bad. But when we, you know, probe more deeply, raise deeper questions than how can I apply meditation as a band-aid to an open wound, think more about maybe there's something more to meditation than simply first aid then it's bound to start raising questions about priorities. What we really want, especially when we augment our practice of shamatha with four measurables and start out with this, these questions, these four questions from this morning. What do you think would make you happy? What have you already found that doesn't? You know, we've all been around at least for a couple of decades, not quite two decades in a couple of cases, but getting pretty close. You know, 18, 19, 20 years, that's a, that's a good, good period of time to do trial and error, trial and error, see, see what works, see what doesn't work. Oh yeah. And so three weeks of finding, this is kind of getting to the core. This is dealing inside the system. Clearly trying to repair the system so that there's less genuine unhappiness. And that is, of course, distress created internally without any stimulation from the environment and then gradually tapping into our internal resources for genuine happiness. Once again, a sense of well-being, even a sense of calm, relaxation that's generated from within rather than taking Valium or whatever the drugs are these days to calm the mind or get a massage or something from outside to make you feel comfortable mentally. Finally, you can generate that within. So the having an initial emphasis on the, the shamatha and then kind of letting insights start to flow up. Insights into the nature of happiness and its causes. Insights into the nature of unhappiness and its causes. Letting three weeks go by. And then seeing, hmm, maybe those priorities, maybe the things I aspire for, maybe that's worthy of re-evaluation. Of course, we have the help from the four measurables. But that's why I wanted to start this morning with that fundamental re-evaluation. Coming back to the questions. You know, what's your vision of flourishing? What's your vision of a good life? 
what would make you happy? What do you really need from outside? Not all the things you'd like from outside, but how much do you really need? Can you be like Genlam Rimpa, having a rock and a, and a sack of brown flour and being, you know, some of the happiest years of his life? Is that sufficient? Maybe a little bit more. Two sacks of flour. Maybe some lentils and some rice. And maybe four walls and not just a roof. And maybe some plumbing and some air conditioning and a flat screen color television. Maybe a little bit more. Seema, how much do you really need? And then that vision that we really hold conceptually, which is really a statement about us and not a statement about Buddhism or something outside, and that is the possibility of really dissolving your mind into the substrate consciousness, lucidly achieving shamatha. And what would that be like? Might that be worthwhile? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the sacrifice? Is it worth the risk? Is it worth the risk? Because clearly, to take off a year or two is giving up something. It's an investment. And we only have so many years, you know, in our bank account. And it's one of those weird things that we don't know how much money we have left. Whether you've got one day left, whether you've got 50 years left, that's one of those kind of uncomfortable variables that we don't know. So if you've only got two years to live, you know, it just turns out, and you spend those last two years practicing shaman and you don't achieve it, you might feel full. Not a good investment. So, So there's a risk involved. Might you be wasting your time? Might you be wasting your time here? Might you be wasting your time in some particular session? I can give you my answer to that, and now that if the motivation is a really wholesome and meaningful motivation, has some real vision that is is rooted in reality, of recognizing the real causes of suffering and alleviating them, recognizing the real cause of genuine happiness, and seeing how the cultivation of attention fits into that, then from my mind, I've, I've got an answer that I'm totally satisfied with. One second is well spent. One second, like right now. That was a good one. <laughs> Whatever comes out of that, well, I can't control that. But that was one second. That was a good one. You know, one second of just cultivating sanity, wholeness. Grounded, clear, stable, relaxed. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry. I won't regret that one no matter what. If I die in one second, kill over right now, say, that's a good way to go. Nice way. Good good job. I wouldn't mind dying here. That way, I mean, I'd really like, rather live here. But, you know, if I have to die someplace, dying while leading meditation and spending nine or ten hours a day in practice, one could do worse. One could do worse. Yeah. So I'd rather live here. I kind of like living so I can practice Dharma some more. I'm not finished yet. So, so if one has that sense, and I do actually, every moment practicing shamatha, practicing vipassana, dzogchen, the four immeasurables, bodhicitta, whatever comes from it, whether it's three countless eons or whether it's one lifetime, it's going in the right direction. So I, I can't even imagine having regret. I don't know what that would be like. Because it doesn't hinge on what happens tomorrow. It hinges, hinges on what we bring to it right now. So if we just hold for the moment the vision of is it worth the risk? Is it worth the investment, the time, 
the effort, the sacrifices. At some point, maybe not now, I know for some of you, if you have small children, the notion of taking off for a year or two, that's not to be considered. That's not right. That would be kind of like not right, not right livelihood to ditch your kids for a couple of years. No, not, not fair. Not cricket. So, so sorry, Heidi. You cannot go away. <laughs> no, that would be clearly wrong. So, timing is very important. But is it worth holding in mind at all sometime when the time might be ripe? Children no longer so dependent. No real downside from my obligations to the world around me. Taking off a year or two, might it would be worthwhile. And if so, then to think very methodically, very rationally. Okay, what do I need to bring to it? That is, the classic teachings in Shamatha make it quite clear what you need to get from reality. It's quite clear. It's crystal clear. It's very prosaic. What you need is a good environment. So, Klaus has made a really nice one for our basic training. If this were military, this is basic training, what you're getting in eight weeks. Right? You're learning how to basically use the equipment to jog and push-ups, the calisthenics. So, basic training. So, Klaus has created, I think, what, what, what more could we ask? I think we're all pretty clear on that. But then to go off into the front lines into active duty, so to speak, active service, go off and chief shamatha. Then what is needed from outside is crystal clear. Nothing mysterious, nothing opaque, nothing mystical about it. You need a suitable environment. And you can go back to the notes on shamatha and see what they are. It's got to be quiet, it's got to be healthy, it's got to be a pleasant environment, it has to be, be nice to have some companions there. Pretty simple. Easy access to food. That's pretty much it, overall. So that's what the environment needs to give to us. Or we need to find such an, a location, an environment. And then you may need, need to be able to plunk yourself down and, and go with continuity. As Tsongkhapa said, it's like trying to light a fire with rub, by rubbing two sticks. You don't do it for eight weeks and then stop, and then do it for eight weeks and then stop, and then do it for a weekend, and then do it for 3,000 weekends, but taking five days off a week. Um, that would be really like taking the sticks and rubbing, rubbing, and saying, I'm tired, but, oh, let's rub a little bit more. No, I'm really tired, but, oh, let's do a, oh, whatever. How about tell oh, rub, 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 rub. And, of course, you just go on forever doing that, and you'll never get the fire. And so, likewise, it's a strong analogy with, with, with shamatha, unlike a lot of other practices, or at least more so than a lot of other practices. Continuity is the key. You want to plunk down, sit yourself down in a conducive environment, that's a keeper that you can stay with from start to finish. But then what do you need to bring to it? Clearly, that's crucial. And Atisha, the great 11th century Indian master, spent the last 13 years of his life in, in Tibet, passed away there. He said, if you don't have the prerequisites, if you've not fulfilled the outer and inner prerequisites for the achievement of shamatha, then you can practice for a thousand years and not achieve it. So, let's, let's marginalize the risk here of you know, striving, 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 and then not succeeding, not succeeding for a thousand years. That would be kind of a bummer. And so what do we need to bring to it? So this is good to review, and this all in relationship to the loving-kindness practice this morning and our shamatha practice this afternoon. And the first two are a real, real wake-up call. Because imagine yourself in such an environment, rather like this, but it could be simpler with not quite such good food and all of that. So something really simple. Basic, but all the needs met. But like zero entertainment, just nothing there. A beautiful environment is good. Natural beauty is a very nice perk. 
What do you need to bring to it? Two qualities, just for starters. Contentment and having few desires. Now that's a, that's a real, what do they call that? That's a deal, a deal maker or a deal breaker. And that is, if you don't have that, and then you can just stop, stop the conversation. Because you go into this environment where you got nothing to stimulate, nothing to arouse, entertainment, no way, no entertainment, no way to kill time. And if you find, number one, you don't have contentment, and contentment is looking at your present situation and being satisfied with it. Is the food good enough? Is your cushion sufficient? Is your room, is your clothing, your companions, is it sufficient? You can be content here with what you do have. And that's then sitting and watching your breath or watching your mind, watching awareness or doing some other very simple, just grounding practice in shamatha. Can you be content doing that and having virtually nothing else to do? Can you be content? If you can't be, then you're not really ready for a long-term shamatha retreat because you'll just be kind of getting restless. You'll be that cat in the elephant and cat story that either thrashes around on the surface in restlessness or sinks down in boredom and dullness and then depression. And so, can you be content without the stimulation, the props, the ways to catalyze hedonic pleasure? Can you be content to be in your own skin and in your own mind and be there for hours and hours a day, day after day, month after month? Can you be content to be alive? That's a big one. It has to be cultivated. First quality. And the second one is having few desires. So contentment is attending to what you do have and being satisfied with it. And having few desires is has to do with what you don't have and seeing whether you can be have very few desires pertaining to what isn't there. So if you're not getting enough protein, a, a couple, at least a couple of us here can't digest tofu. I can't digest tofu. And so, but I've been told we need some protein here. And I do sense, I do need that. So... Is there a protein? So, if you don't, if you're not getting some substitute, we have meat here, but if you don't want to eat meat, good. Then, can you get something else? So that's a desire. That's a desire. But that's a, that's a meaningful desire. That's not a ridiculous desire. But desiring things you don't have, right? Well, having few of those, so you're very easily satisfied, right? So those two. Well, how on earth could you have contentment and have few desires when you've got very little going on in your environment? And the only way I think you can get there is if you've already had a radical shift of priorities, really become quite deeply disillusioned with the single-minded pursuit of hedonic pleasure, and quite deeply inspired by the single-minded pursuit of genuine happiness. If that's not happened, I don't know really how one could be content and have few desires when you've been basically divorced from almost all hedonic pleasures and all you're left with is a great big cauldron of potential for genuine happiness, but you don't believe in it. And you're not really to invest, not ready to invest in it. You don't have confidence in it. So I suspect before going off into such a, a kind of long-term retreat, one would really have to have a lot of, I would call it, cognitive maturation. And that is growing up, maturing, bringing wisdom to our own priorities, our aspirations, our desires. So that we are really focusing on reality-based desires that might have a chance of providing fulfillment, namely the ones that pertain to genuine happiness. So that would take some real revolution. And that's so, why so many of the teachings in the Buddha Dharma, but other traditions as well, the contemplative traditions in Christianity, in Hinduism and so forth, 
really such a strong emphasis on really deliberately becoming disillusioned with hedonic pleasures. And the notion that somehow that really has a chance of providing satisfaction. Coming to the point where you know it's got no chance whatsoever, and it doesn't matter how friendly samsara is with you, it will never satisfy you. It's got like giving you buckets full of salt water, and saying you can have as much as you want. How much would you like to slake your thirst? And if you're still thinking, well, maybe one swimming pool, you know, then you haven't got it. And you recognize even an ocean won't slake your thirst. And then you become disillusioned. But it's not enough to be disillusioned. You also need to see some real promise, some inspiration. And the best way to get it is by tasting it, by seeing for yourself there is another avenue of well-being. So those crucial ones, contentment and having few desires, without those, there's not much point in going long-term retreat. You're just going to be unhappy. And then finding ways to kill time. And frankly, Dharma can be a way to kill time. I don't want to be too harsh here. But you can fill up a lot of time just reciting mantras. And doing visualizations. And then chanting. And then doing some exercises. Mimicking a... Uh, what do we call those little worms? Inchworm, yeah. Some people call it doing prostrations. Some people call it being an inchworm in place. If nothing is prostrations, it can be a very meaningful devotional practice. So can mantras, so can liturgy, so can visualizations. But it can also be a real way to get your mind off your mind. It can be a real way to cover up, to obscure the inner causes of unhappiness because you're keeping yourself so busy. Can happen. Can happen. So, shamatas, meditation with no anesthesia, no elaboration, no cover-up, no distraction. It's just being real, being real, being real. It's quite painful on occasion. Contentment, having few desires, maintaining pure ethics. Here's the third one. One can think, again, one can always think rigidly about anything. And thinking rigidly about ethics is I just simply need to learn the rules. How many how many rules do I need to memorize and how many things do I need to avoid? But it's good to bear in mind that for the first 12 years after the Buddha's enlightenment, for the first, first 12 years of many, many people coming to him, becoming monks, eventually becoming nuns, following the path, for the first 12 years there weren't any monastic vows at all. Not one. Didn't need them. Didn't need them. The people who came to him to follow him were so intent, so inspired by his example, so intent on finding liberation, freedom from themselves, that they just kind of intuitively knew there's just some things you don't do. Like, if you're heading out on, a, on an automobile trip, on an, autom on an automobile ride, you don't think about going, opening up the hood, opening up your the cylinder block, and saying, okay, before we head out, let's throw some sand in the cylinder block. And how about some sugar in the gas tank? That'll make it a, a nice, sweet trip, you know. People don't do that because it's really stupid, right? It's going to screw up your engine. And so, but you don't need, you know, when you when you go look at the driver's manual, don't put sugar in your gas tank. You may be tempted, but don't do it. It's a bad idea. When you get that impulse to throw sa sand in the in the in the in the, in, the, in the cylinders, you know, refrain, have a vow, don't don't do that. It's a bad idea, you know. Only if people who are really stupid would you have to have a driver's manual. Somehow they got an impulse to do that. Or 
don't hammer nails into your tires. You know, I might not be so fun. Then you need to find, okay, no more, somebody did it, and okay, now we have to have one more rule in driver's manual. Don't put nails in your tires. Bad idea. Okay? So 12 years went by with no, no vows at all. And then one monk got one really stupid idea, and then the, and the Buddha said, okay, now you got a vow. And then he kept on teaching. And if he'd lived a really long time, who knows how many vows there would have been. But he lived long enough that there were 237 for men. That's how many times people screwed up unprecedentedly. And then he screwed up once, and then what is it again? And he got another vow. Oh, now you got another vow. That's a big vow. Okay, that's another vow. That's a secondary vow. Oh, you got another vow. The good old days. The first 12 years when nobody needed to know this stuff. They had to to memorize. So what is pure ethical discipline? Don't do anything with your body, speech, and mind that disrupts the balance of your mind and impedes your practice or the practice of anybody else. It's kind of it, isn't it? Pretend to pretty well cover it. Don't do anything by way of body, speech, and mind that throws your own mind out of balance, that impedes your own spiritual practice and impedes or harms anybody else. You go that, you kind of got the, you got the gist of it right there. You got, pardon the expression, you got ethics by the balls. You know? You got it where it really can't get away. Bit crude, but you know, you really got it. It can't get away if you're holding that. You lose the thread. You lose the thread of why are we here? Is this a, and then you start screwing up because you forgot the essence. So there it is. That's an ongoing adventure. It's an ongoing challenge. It's an ongoing inspiration to be wise, to be attentive, to be attending closely. What's the impact of our behavior on ourselves, on the people around us? And that includes mental behavior. And keep it clean. Don't throw sand in your own gearbox or anybody else's gearbox. So there's ethics. But it's an ongoing challenge from moment to moment to moment. And it gets subtler and subtler and subtler. Seeing how even a little perturbation here, a little bit of perturbation there can jar you, throw you out of balance or throw somebody else out of balance. So we protect each other. That's what Sangha is for. Whether it's a largely unordained Sangha that we have here, a community of fellow travelers, that we're here at the very least not to impede each other in our practice. Doing when we can and helping each other out. So there's ethics. The next one is so easy. I'm almost finished. Next one is very interesting. It's called in Tibetan, Dunyun Janyun. And that is, this is very specifically for shamatha retreat. When you've got it in the front lines, you're saying, okay, now I've got my life in order. No, it's going to be really bummed out if I take off for a year or two. I found the environment, I'm ready to go, and I'm going, and when I get there, I'm going to do a radical lifestyle shift. Maybe not be so radical if I prepared really incrementally, but when I get there, it's going to be very different from normal. And that is having very few activities and very few concerns. In other words, totally radically not busy. Not busy with the body, that you have a lot of tasks to do. Not busy with the mind, a lot of things to plan, anticipate, remember, don't forget this, little little notes on the refrigerator and so forth, very, very little to do. And it really strikes me as, I know with my computer, it's a little bit old now, it's getting a bit unreliable, and sometimes it just gets funky, because it's just not working correctly. And I know, and I know it's just, okay, I've got to either do a, a force power down, sometimes it won't even let me out of the loop, that happens. And I can't hit escape, and I, ha- I can't hit quit, and nothing works, then I just have to have the force quit. I just say, you know, die. And then you go, 
and then you know, I just knocked it out, right? So I have to do that periodically. Or just restarting is a bit gentler approach. But it means shut down everything, and that is close all your applications. And I hope you save before you did. You know, save everything you didn't want to you know, lose. So it's really not a bad analogy. And that is when you have a dysfunctional way of life, where genuine unhappiness is arising, and then just augmented by genu- uh, you know, hedonic unhappiness. And you see the mind isn't working very well. It's still not stable, not very clear, not very relaxed. And mental afflictions are having a, he- a heyday, still enjoying the playground of your mind. Or oh. then rebooting, doing a forced power down, or at least restarting, turning off all the applications, and just shutting down, just shutting everything down, going into, okay, starting all over here. New environment, new lifestyle, and we're starting flat. And then you reboot. And you re- reboot into, into a contemplative way of life, where now suddenly everything's really simple. You're here to meditate. That's it. Any more questions? Yeah, it's real simple. But it's got to keep it simple, because meditators have been finding for centuries that once you're there, if you keep loping out, jumping out, and getting involved in activities, they'll keep on reverberating into your meditation sessions. It'll be very hard for the mind to really settle down. So that's the fourth one. And then there's just one more. And that is both during and in between sessions, completely release, let go of, get rid of, all obsessive, compulsive, delusional thinking. That flow of blah, 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 blah. You know it well by now. But just be relentless. Just don't give it an inch. You know, it's like trying to break a cocaine habit. Don't take a little bit. Like being an alcoholic, alcoholic. And saying, well, I'm not going to kind of slide off, you know, only one six-pack, and then I'll gradually go to, you know, just three bottles. And once in a while I might go back to six-pack, I feel like it. That's, under- I said, that's not how it works. You kind of just say, no more. No more, not even a drop. Just, that's my understanding is you just stop. And then you really can become a recovering alcoholic and never suffer from it again. And so that kind of relentlessness of just saying, I've got now just one thing to do to balance my mind. And it's a 24-7 kind of job. And I'm just not going to let those vi- those mental viruses in to contaminate and affect my mind anymore. I've got nothing else to do here. There's nothing else to do except to maintain a sense of ease, inner stillness and clarity and just not let it be encroached upon by the old habits, time to break habits. And I'm here to establish a whole new plateau for having a mind. So, that's the kind of prerequisites for venturing off to the front lines and winning the battle, defeating the foes of excitation and laxity and achieving an exceptional degree of sanity. So, hopefully we can bring the outer and the inner. I'm working with Klaus and other people trying our best to create an outer. But if all we have is the outer, and then we have a bunch of people who don't have the inner, then we just may as well turn the outer into a game park or a nature preserve. You know, it won't be so useful. So, we'll return this afternoon then, finally, to the beginning of settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state
and one simply cannot overemphasize how important this one is and cannot overemphasize the lingering disadvantages of not giving this sufficient attention and leaping out to visualizations and exercises and liturgies and chanting and discursive meditations and so forth and so on and so on. And all of those have their place. I'm not disparaging any of them. But if you've not settled your body, speech, and mind in this natural state, in their natural states, and you venture off into these practices, there are going to be problems. And they'll just keep on coming up and coming up and coming up. Right? So, let's lay a good foundation. Find equilibrium. Start there, and we'll end there. In finer and finer equilibrium. So please find a comfortable position. in this spirit of loving-kindness with which we began the day together. A gentleness, a caring, an affection for yourself and all those with whom you engage. In that spirit and with that motivation, let your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. Rise up and fill the whole body, this whole space of tactile sensation. You don't need to visualize the body. Just remain in this witnessing mode. In the felt, let there be just the felt. Set your body at ease. Relax all the muscles that are ne not needed for sustaining the posture that you're in right now. And if you're in the supine, release them all. And especially those of the face and especially the ones around the eye.
Once you're settled in your comfort zone, then be still, still like a mountain that breathes. At least psychologically maintaining a posture of vigilance. And if you're sitting upright, the spine straight, the sternum lifted, the belly soft. Then as a very gentle means for allowing your inner voice, the chit-chat of the mind, to settle in a natural state of effortless silence. Release with your body, release with your breath and your mind, with every out-breath. Release totally. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. And now with this core aspiration to seek genuine happiness, release all your cares, your hopes and fears about the future and the past. There's a time for thinking about them, but not all the time and not now. 
content to be in the present moment and come to rest there in stillness. Now to round off this initial preparatory sequence of settling the body, speech, and mind and the natural state. Let your eyes be at least partially open. And for, for a little while, let's go ahead and practice this open presence. Your awareness wide open to all the six avenues or domains of experience. But not following after any objects of the mind, just letting the appearances arise. Without attraction or aversion, without distraction, without being carried away from the present moment. Without grasping, latching onto anything sensory or mental, Just letting be in 360 degrees, in all directions, in and out. Just being present, relaxed, open, spacious, clear and still. With no questions and no answers, no affirmation or negation, just being present. being content 
just to be here. Now that we've made our bodies and minds relatively suitable vessels for setting out on the path, let's begin the practice of shamatha, which always entails selective attention. So with your eyes open, hooded or closed, as you wish, now draw in your awareness, this wild steed of your attention, and confine it within the field of your body here and now. Within this field, your attention can roam at will, or it can simply pervade the whole field, but it must remain within the field. Now, while picking up all kinds of sensations within the body, we even more selectively focus on those indicative of the in-and-out flow of the breath, be it in the abdomen, in the thighs, the chest, wherever you feel. Those sensations correlated with the respiration. When you breathe in long, note that you breathe in long. When you breathe out long, note that you breathe out long. When the in-breath is short, know it is short. When the out-breath is short, know it is short. Now is the time to cultivate a deeper and deeper root system of relaxation, of ease, of looseness within the body and mind, relaxing deeply with every outbreath.
Whatever thoughts arise, release them instantly, with no interest. Doesn't matter what they are, just let them, let them go.
you remember what needs to be balanced. With each out-breath, relax more and more deeply. But balance this so that you do not lose the degree of clarity with which you began the session. It's as if you're letting your body fall asleep and even your mind fall asleep. This active mind. But while keeping the light on, the light of awareness, not dimming in the process.
Roland Asso, uh, a private message in public for Deborah. I have done so, and he said he would do so. Good. And here's a, um, a question that I will not read out loud, but I think the response may be helpful to a number of people. So I'm going to leave it private and just kind of summarize. But the person who wrote this note knows who it's from. Uh, and so I'm going to read it quietly. So, overall, the question pertains to nyam. So, have I defined that to everybody in the group yet? Maybe not. Or is, is, is anybody not familiar with the Tibetan term nyam? Anybody not familiar with it? Good, that's enough. Nyam, Tibetan term, and uh, literally it's very easy to translate, it means experience. Um, but in the context of shamatha practice, and actually more broadly uh, in practice of Dzogchen and so forth, uh, if there were an English, good English translation for this, I would just use it, but I don't know of one. Here's what a nyam is. It's N-Y-A-M in terms of pronunciation or English spelling. It's a transient, anomalous, psycho or somatic experience that is catalyzed by authentic meditative practice. So you're practicing correctly. There are all kinds of problems we can get into, uh, physical problems, psychological problems, and so forth, infinite array by practicing incorrectly. But they're not nyam, they're just symptoms that you're practicing incorrectly, and then you have to stop it, you know, and practice correctly again. So that's not what this is about. Nyam are experiences that arise when you're right on track, you're practicing correctly, whether it's mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, or what have you, let's say within the shamatha context. And as a result of your correct practice, then some very strange, sometimes disturbing, sometimes pleasant, sometimes just weird, Somatic experiences arise in the body, sometimes very painful, sometimes just weird, again, sometimes pleasant. But they arise and they were catalyzed by your meditative practice. Uh, but as in yam, they tend to be transient. They last for a matter of hours, maybe a day or two, and then they just evaporate as if they'd never even occurred. You say, wow, what was that? You know? And if they're unpleasant, you might think, oh, this must be a medical condition, maybe I should go down to the hospital, I should get a checkup, what is this? And, of course, it is possible that a medical condition has arisen, in which case, do the sensible thing and go to a doctor. But it often happens in meditation that what comes up is not a medical condition, and if you were to go to the doctor, the doctor would say, well, I, I'm, I'm sure you're telling me the truth, you have such and such sensations, but I don't see anything medically wrong with you. In which case, the doctor has just told you, you have a yum, and that'll be $100, please. Because there's no medical treatment for it because it's not a medical problem. And likewise, so sometimes they can be straight somatic. Other times they can be psychological, uh, just out of the blue experiences of anxiety, of sadness, of depression, of fear, of paranoia, of extreme restlessness. And then the nyam can be spikes of bliss and incredible luminosity and profound stillness. And the thing is, they come, they envelop the mind and then they just disappear like mist and often leave without a trace. And sometimes it's a mixture of psycho and somatic. So they tend to come and go, and they're very much part of the practice, especially shamatha practice. They're part of other practices as well. Uh, but they occur somatically. The overall diagnosis would be by doing this practice and doing it correctly. Deeper, deeper sense of relaxation, the stillness, the clarity arising. Then blockages, and I'm going to speak from first-person physiology of chakras and nadis and all of that kind of business. Blockages are, are breaking up, 
and pranas are starting to flow. And sometimes when they first flow, it can be, you can feel a spasm, what's called a myoclonic jerk or a myoclonic spasm of a limb jerking. So what's, what, what's up with that? And they call it a myoclonic jerk. And there it is. There are all kinds of jerks, but this is a myoclonic one. And there's no, there's no real treatment for it. It just means from the first person perspective, the energy is opened up and the, the limb, limb has a little spasm and then it's over. But again, it can be all kinds of experiences arising because of the movements of the prana, bearing in mind that this is, how do you say, prana-wise, or in terms of your subtle energy system, the practice of shamatha, especially when you're going quite intensively for a sustained period, could be called an extreme makeover, or a deep, deep tune-up job. That is, the, the system is getting overhauled, and blockages that have been, may have been there for years or even decades in the practice of shamatha, if it's going well, they will very likely get unblocked, and that can give rise to all kinds of experiences. So somatically, it's really occurring because of the movement of prana. Psychologically, of course, as you've heard now a number of times, the authentic practice of shamatha, especially when you're doing it 6, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you're necessarily dredging your psyche. Memories will come up, and emotions and desires, feelings of all kinds will come up. And that's part of the process. You know thyself. Well, you're getting no dimensions of your, of yourself that were probably largely ignored or overlooked or suppressed for perhaps years. So there we are. So what to do? Well, so the person who asked this question comments, and I'll just read quietly again. But these are coming up for the case of this person. Some pretty intensive somatic nyama. So nyam or nyams, as you like, are coming up. And so I'm going to read quietly again. So, um, yeah, in this case, it feels as if the, the channels in the body are inflamed, like this, so inflamed. Uh, and it feels like one had to, can't quite read the word, but, but like feeling kicked all over. Maybe even bruised, kind of just feeling pain. I was teaching an, a, a rather elderly woman, not very old, but not young, no longer young years back. She was in good health overall. Now, actually, she had aches and pains. She was experiencing some of the discomforts of aging. And I gave her just mindfulness of breathing pretty much in the supine position. Uh, she was drawn to it. She enjoyed it. She found it beneficial. And quite interesting, she was overall in good health, but just aches and pains of being however old she was at the time. And so, she, and she did a lot of supine position. And interestingly enough, there she is in the supine position, so we can't blame it on sitting too much and stressing out the back or the hips or anything like that. Supine position. And finding on occasion her body would just be filled with intense pain. And what's she doing? She's lying on her back, just breathing in, breathing out. So where is the intense pain coming from? But it was really quite that intense. And it's exactly that, nyam coming up. Okay? And then they passed right on through. And as she continued for months doing this practice three, four, five hours a day. She had no husband, no children. She was financially independent, lived a quasi-contemplative way of life. So she's practicing three to five hours a day. Lo and behold, this is one of the nicest stories I've ever heard from anybody I've helped in meditation, is that before she went on this quasi-retreat, she would get together with other friends of hers of her same generation. And she told me they'd often get together and they would talk about their physical complaints. You know, have some tea and, how's your lumbago looking? Oh, no. 
Oh, well, my arthritis is really being acting up. Oh, yeah, my indigestion is really shot to hell. Oh, yeah. How are you doing? Oh, my knees are killing me. Oh, you? Oh, my, my hip transplant is really doing... Really. And they would just chat about how their bodies were falling apart, you know? And for week to week, of course, it just got better and better. There's more to talk about. And so that's why she, how she spent her time talking with her friends. And then as she was doing this, this retreat, this quasi-retreat, again, only four or five hours a day, she found, lo and behold, the body just started feeling better and better, lighter and lighter, the old aches and, uh, aches and pains kind of just evaporating. And she still visited her friends, but she found she just had less and less to say. <laughs> yeah, but a, a boring conversation partner. And so there we are. So feeling kicked all over, waves of complete exhaustion, seemingly no energy at all, hard to move around at times. Yeah. Just by the way, those are very common yam. Very, very common. And it's not just common when you're just starting out, you know, and having to do a, mat- a radical lifestyle shift from socially active, all of that kind of business, to now relatively sedentary and so forth. So one can expect that, the body kind of feeling heavy and lethargic by slipping into such a sedentary way of life. Maybe a, maybe an hour or two of exercise over in the sports facility, but besides that, we're just not doing much here. But lo and behold, one of the big surprises, if you study the, the nine stages of shamatha, you learn about them, one of the real shockers, frankly, and it turns out to be really very true, is up there on stage six. You might recall it if you've heard me give teachings on this. Up on stage six, when you're really, you're really no longer an amateur. If you're up on stage six, you have been practicing. You have made some major accomplishments. And so you might think, oh, seven, eight, nine, and I'm finished. You know, it's home free. Yippee! And let's throw a party. And then you're finding just these qualities coming in. Lethargy, heaviness, no energy. You might also have lust coming up, just to make it more interesting. You know, sexual desire. You might find all kinds of just really crappy stuff coming up in the mind, but heaviness of the body and maybe even pain and things like that, and you say, what the heck is this? Stage six, I should be beyond that stuff. Stage six is where you tend to do a lot of the really deep dredging work. And it brings out deep stuff, somatically, energy-wise, psychologically. So it's these are still signs of progress. So don't be surprised. Once you you know get to stage four, think it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. You know? Not necessarily. And there's no predictability. There's no predictability about it. It's not that everybody just, you know, crashes and burns on stage six. But it is characteristic. You see, you know, what are the problems that arise? Lethargy, depression, boredom, lust, craving. You see, I had to get to stage six to that. I can have that at stage one. <laughs> you know. But stage one is just about the surface stuff. Stage six is stuff you're doing from the very, very deep dredging. So it maybe looks similar on the surface. It's not because some very deep purification is taking place. Some real dredging is taking place. So, all of this is actually right on the money. So, any suggestions, any exercises to help the energies flow more freely? Just letting things dissolve as much, uh, as much as possible in our notes or anything else? I might suggest. Yeah. Settling the body, speech, and mind in the natural state and spending a lot of time in the infirmary. There are all kinds of clever things. And I, I use clever, not sarcastically. Smart, really insightful, ingenious, ingenious techniques 
some special new type of massage or some very, very sophisticated high-tech breathing exercise. I've learned some of them. Uh, some very complex visualizations, physical exercises. That, you know, some, some yogi had a, just a stroke of genius and came up with a new exercise, a special asana for here and so forth and so on. So those all have their place. You know, there have really been, there have been yogis for so long. It means there was a good sprinkling of, of geniuses among them. And they've come up with very ingenious visualizations, chanting, mantras, visual exercises, and so forth. And in many cases, they're really worthy of a lot of respect and trust. And then there's your Buddha nature. The Buddha nature, not as simply some mysterious dimension of reality you don't know anything about, but Buddha nature, this, presti- this dimension of your, of your being that is already present, that's already influencing your body and mind right now, percolating up through the subtle levels, the substrate consciousness, the energies correlated with that, and percolating up into the coarse mind and the coarse body, and manifesting as really an utterly extraordinary, awe-inspiring capacity for this body-mind system to heal itself. So I'm not one, absolutely not one, who feels that whatever comes up in the body, oh, like appendicitis, that just, well, settle your body, speech, and mind and watch it pass. It may pass, but your life might pass at the same time. (laughs) That, you know, you have to sacrifice the body in the process. So no, I'm actually a believer in modern medicine. I believe in Tibetan medicine and all the great traditions have their value. So there's that. And I would say all of that, from Tibetan medicine up to modern surgery. And boy, sometimes surgery is the difference between life and death. So, you know, I think I'm a sensible person in this regard. For all of those systems, from taking Tibetan herbs, which I do twice a day and I've been doing it for a long time by now, my health maintenance program, from taking Tibetan herbs to going in for radical quadruple bypass surgery, so I'd say that pretty well covers a good bandwidth. That's developmental approach. That's the developmental approach. Get in there and do something. Take some herbs. Take some vitamins. Take some surgery. And that all has its place. So I'm a believer in developmental process. But we just shouldn't ignore the other side of the yin-yang symbol here. And that is, to what extent does this body-mind have a capacity to heal itself? And what can we stop doing that's impeding that from happening? So when we're lying in the infirmary and going quite deeply into it, becoming more and more adept at it, becoming, you know, a genius, at settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state, is letting be, letting be, and relaxing beyond anything we ever imagined possible. And we're really opening up the capacity of the body to sort itself out, and especially energetically. Especially energetically. That's where the real deep source of healing can manifest. So that would be my very best. If you have any other ingenious developmental interventions, maybe Thai massage, exercising, swimming, and so forth, all of that can have its place. And I do believe in that. But I actually believe overall, more deeply, in getting out of the way and letting this body-mind sort itself out. So... The rest is private. I will read that, and the rest is private. I will read it just um, at my leisure, because I want to read it carefully. We have a bit of time, so here's a big juicy one coming up. Um, 
I think I've done my best, actually, literally, I've done my best, in terms of the four measurables, to try to move these out of the mode of simply being liturgy. I've done a lot of liturgy in my time, especially for the 14 years that I was a monk. Uh, Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. I just cultivated the four immeasurables. Now I'm ready to do something else. Right? Whipping through it. Whipping through it. We can whip through, oh, prayers of refuge, bodhicitta. We can even whip through it a hundred thousand times to give us a real sense of accomplishment. A hundred thousand times I went through that liturgy. Something must have happened. After all, I did a hundred thousand times. Something must have happened. I must be pure. In any case, I finished, and that's a good thing. I don't have to do that for a while. Now that I finished the preliminary practices. I can tell everybody, I finished the preliminary practices. It's good. Better than nothing. But nothing isn't much. So refuge. Refuge. The question, as we can turn the four measurables into simply a liturgy, an empty little ritual that you may as well just turn on the tape recorder and let it do its practice for you. Give us some donations once in a while. The verses of refuge can also be a liturgy. Can also be a, can be a ritual. But it's too bad because the refuge can be so immensely meaningful and transformative. Such a great source of joy. So, to start with, I'm happy to make some response. It will be within, within 15 minutes, maybe even shorter. Um, I think it's very helpful to start out with the awareness that all of us, without exception, hardcore atheists, flame-throwing materialists, orthodox Jews, Taoists, and so forth and so on, everybody takes refuge. Everybody takes refuge. Nobody doesn't take refuge. Bill Gates takes refuge. Howard Hughes used to take refuge. In ice cream, actually. There was one kind of flavor of ice cream that he really wanted. Howard Hughes, you know who he is, yeah? Very interesting guy, very rich, a little bit strange. But towards the end of his life, when he's fabulously rich, extremely brilliant, but a bit odd, there was one kind of ice cream, flavor of ice cream from 31 flavors in America that he really wanted. And they were out. They said, I'm sorry, Mr. Hughes, but we've discontinued that and we won't make that particular flavor for a while again until, you know, we, we cycle through. We don't have just 31 flavors. We have a lot of flavors, and we cycle them through. You just missed the cycle. But don't worry, in a couple of years it'll come around again. And he said, no, I want that ice cream now. I said, well, you can have it now, but you'd have to order 10,000 gallons. He said, make it so. <laughs> and he had a gallon or two, he was satisfied. He moved right on. So he was taking refuge in a bit of ice cream for a while. We take refuge, which means simply to entrust ourselves. Uh, if you have a dental problem, we had a person here with a problem with his wisdom teeth in one of the early retreats. So if he's taking refuge in me, he's making a really bad decision. Might have a little bit of wisdom to pass on, but has nothing to do with wisdom teeth. And so he did the smart thing. He took refuge in a dentist at the in, in town. And he went there repeatedly. 
this dentist knew a lot more about teeth than he did, so he relied upon his dental expertise and the surgery involved and so forth. And he went from having a lot of pain in his mouth to having no pain in his mouth. And it took some while. But he entrusted himself, not knowing all the, the dental knowledge that the dentist had, but in, but trusting that he had enough to be able to solve that problem. So he had a hedonic problem. He went to a person with hedonic expertise, and he entrusted himself to them. And that, that dentist wound up being worthy of taking refuge for his teeth. Other people take refuge in investment counselors to invest their money. Uh, and so forth, all kinds of things. You want to learn how to swim, probably good to learn from somebody who knows how. You know, and actually knows how to teach it. And so we entrust ourselves. We entrust ourselves, first of all, to our parents, or if the parents have passed away, foster parents and so on, but to tell us what to eat and so forth. So we're, we entrust ourselves to others who have greater knowledge than our own, and we trust that they do have knowledge than our own. They have expertise, experience that we don't have, and so it's very suitable, even for very dedicated Dharma practitioners, to entrust ourselves to doctors, to dentists, and so forth, to take care of our hedonic concerns. And then it comes to the pursuit of genuine happiness, and getting to the root of suffering, the internal roots of suffering, that those tendencies within, and we know pretty well what they are, three three chief culprits, craving, hostility, and delusion, and when we recognize through our own experience that these actually do lie at the root of all suffering, it's kind of a big discovery. Uh, when we get some, at least some intimation of that, that, these are the actual causes of suffering. Three will do it. One is just sufficient. Delusion. But when it flowers and we see craving and hostility and then everything else, when we recognize what the true causes of suffering are and then get some intimation, what are the true causes of genuine happiness? Then we can ask, as if you'd had a tooth problem, and say, okay, who's a good dentist? Okay, who's a good genuine happiness doctor who has actually identified and has a really good clue, experientially or at least you know, in terms of knowledge, who can help me heal, get on a path of healing, and carry as, much, as far along that path as I can to gaining freedom from the underlying causes of suffering and gaining awakening to the inner resources that yield genuine happiness. So on whom shall we rely for that? And whom shall we entrust for that? Or shall we, rec shall we assume that other people really don't know what they're talking about? In which case, I'm just going to try to do this on my own, as if nobody's ever tried this before. Uh, and that's always a possibility. We can always just try to be self-reliant. Of course, that would entail reading nothing, which might be a pretty small box to work from. Or one might think, well, the great ones have all passed away. I'll just rely on books, but not people, because what do people know nowadays anyway? And rely on old books. That's a possibility. So refuge, I think it really is boils down to trust. It can be blind or it can be well-informed. Within the Buddhist framework, one asks, okay, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. You want to add a fourth, then it's your own guru. But what's the most explicit? What's the most direct? Try, refuge. In what you most directly entrust yourself. The Buddha passed away 2,500 years ago, and do you really know what he said and didn't say? A lot of people like to throw that back at you. And then make up whatever they want to say, this is what the Buddha really said. That's quite cute. Ridiculous, but it's cute. 
And so, but it is difficult. He passed away 2,500 years ago. So it does make him a bit remote in time. The Sangha is very good, but they're out there and they, you can't bring them around with you all the time. And the real Sangha, the authentic Sangha as refuge, refers to those who have gained direct realization of Nirvana. bit difficult to identify who has and who hasn't. A bit dicey. So the explicit refuge, a lot of you know the right answer here, there really is only one right answer, is the Dharma, the practice itself, the understanding, the theory and practice of Dharma, the way of viewing reality, the practices to be implemented, the way of life to embrace. It's really the medicine itself. And it either works or it doesn't work. That is, it either alleviates the roots of suffering, brings forth a genuine sense of genuine happiness, or it doesn't. But when you do take the medicine, then you see from your own experience, and that, in my limited experience, that is the most stable source of real faith, confidence, inspiration, when it comes from your, from your own experience. Outside teachers can inspire, they can inform, and that may give rise to some degree of faith. It may be strong. But in my experience, at least for me, I know, as much as I'm inspired by my teachers, by many other people, and of course informed a lot, what really gives the tr confidence and trust is seeing that it works, that actually is helpful. That's a keeper. That you, that you carry with you wherever you go. So taking refuge really boils down to trust. A well-earned trust, a very much like a trust in, friend, in a friend. When you first meet somebody, your trust shouldn't be all that deep because you don't know who they are. But if you engage with that person, you get to know them, you see them in a wide variety of circumstances, you engage in a wide variety of endeavors with them, and that person proves him or herself to be trustworthy, then that trust grows and grows and grows. And I can say from first-person perspective, my sense of trust, confidence, stronger this year than it was last year, stronger last year than the year before, goes right back. It's kind of a friendship. Friendship with Dharma, friendship with my teachers, friendship with the Buddha, with the Sangha. So, when one takes refuge, one does so with the awareness that although one brings to the practice one's own Buddha nature, one brings to the practice some degree of virtue that is already manifesting one's life, including the aspiration to practice Dharma, one also brings a lot of other stuff mental afflictions, habits, which are major impediments on the practice, to the practice. I'm going to really cloud the intuition and cloud the intelligence. And so for that reason, having spiritual friends can be so helpful and trusting ourselves to them, finding teachers with greater insight, experience, knowledge than ourselves, and who are motivated by compassion. So, as is so, said so often in a degenerate era, when it might be difficult to find Vajrayana masters who have all the absolutely awesome qualifications of being a Vajrayana Acharya. Staggering when you see all the quali qualifications needed for that. Or even for Mahayana, the ten qualities of a, of, a, of a true Mahayana Acharya, a master, a teacher. Pretty awesome. Shravagayana. Mastery of the Abhidhamma, the Sutta Bittika, the Vinaya. Pretty awesome. So when things get degenerate, 
and you know, and maybe there aren't that many really hyper, you know, incredibly qualified teachers around. Then you kind of say, okay, what's the bare minimum here? What's the bare minimum to entrust yourself to a teacher? The bare minimum is when you engage with a teacher, do you have a sense, a pretty clear sense, that this person has more knowledge and or experience than you do on the path? If you don't have that competence, there's no reason to look to that person as a teacher. Maybe as a spiritual friend, but not as a teacher. Not as a guru. But that's not enough. A person really must have, though, more knowledge and or experience. Not what's the point, right? But that's not enough. The motivation. If you, and it must be a pretty strong conviction. Why is this person teaching? Why is this person making him or herself available as a teacher? What's the point? What are you doing it for? And if the primary motivation is very simple, to try to be of service, to try to help alleviate others' suffering, help them with their problems, help them find the path, that's good enough. But it's, if it's not that, it's not good enough. If it's not, if it's not altruism, it's not good enough. Because it's something else, and the something else could be very troublesome. So those two, those two are said to be sufficient. But there's one other factor. That is, objectively, what do we really need from the other person? Those two. But then it's not just objectively. Any more than if you're looking for a spouse, that you've got a checklist. This, 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 this. Oh, good, congratulations, you just fit the cliche. Would you like to marry me? Because you, I just checked out at all five. Bit, bit weird. Kind of weird way to find a spouse. Have a checklist. And <laughs> there also has to be the chemistry when engaging with that person that person who could potentially become your teacher, your guru, spiritual friend, do you actually get any benefit from that person's way of teaching, that person's presence, any inspiration, any benefit? If not, then even if the person is has great realization, great teacher, if you're not getting any benefit, what's the point? So there has to be some affinity. Some benefit must be received. So the refuge is really focusing on that. It's two, two-sided, and then I think I'll stop. It's recognizing from one's own side as if you had wisdom teeth that needed pulling. Well, what we have is three toxins of the mind that need pulling. And if possible, pull them out entirely, eradicate them from the root. Right? The unwisdom teeth. <laughs> Delusion, craving, hostility. Is there anybody out there that can help us? Because all kinds of people can help us a little bit. When, that, when somebody mentions some time ago, some practice, and say, oh, people find it helpful. Oh, but people find all kinds of things helpful. Playing tennis, gardening, swimming, rock climbing, taking a lot of vitamin C. You know, there's all kinds of things that help. But we're not talking about just help here. We're talking about if you're really taking refuge of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, it's how about a path to liberation? Right? And so for that, it's a bit more than finding this was a little bit helpful. And so... Recognizing here, what's the depth of your aspiration? What's the depth of your motivation? If you're looking for just a little bit of help, good. Try Valium. Try a massage. You'll get some help. But the deeper your motivation goes, then the deeper the sense of trust needs to be when we rely upon anyone outside. And if your aspiration is to find liberation from mental afflictions so that you never experienced them before, ever again, then you want an ahat or better. Or someone carrying the lineage. That actually can be enough. It's quite surprising a little bit. 
But it's possible to become an arhat following a teacher who's not an arhat. It's happened. But the teacher has to be a clear conduit for the teaching. Even if not an arhat, has to be passing on arhat teaching without screwing them up. And if you don't screw it up, a non-arhat can lead other people to achieve arhatship. And the same thing, a person not a bodhisattva, passing on authentic bodhisattva teachings can lead others to becoming bodhisattva. And it can go on and on there. Realizing vipassana, realizing emptiness. Do you have to have a direct realization yourself to lead other people to realization? Not necessarily. You have to be a clean conduit. The more realization you have, of course, the more beneficial it is. But if you have realization and somehow give screwed up teachings, well, that's not going to be helpful. So that's why the refuge in Dharma is the most important. So, the deeper the motivation, the deeper the refuge. But it all focuses in fundamentally and primarily on the teaching. The Dharma itself. What you are learning, what you are practicing. And if what you learn is authentic, and it was conveyed to you without distortion, you can take refuge in the teaching and look upon the conduit with gratitude. That should be enough. That's our only hope. I really think there are incredibly realized teachers these days. Not that many of them speak English or Western languages. They're there, and there are some really good interpreters occasionally. But our great aunt, if you can find such a teacher, and they are there. I've mentioned the name of one of them, and certainly, that's certainly not the only one. It's just one I know. He doesn't speak English, but his Tibetan is quite clear. I've been listening to his Tibetan just recently. But there's really hope even if you don't have the extraordinary good fortune to come under the direct guidance of a person like Dingo Kinsu Rinpoche, Tukse Rinpoche, Dujum Rinpoche, Ling Rinpoche, direct sustained guidance by His Holiness Dalai Lama, and so forth, even if you don't have that incredibly good fortune. Nevertheless, if you can encounter authentic teachings, then take refuge in Samantabhadra. Ultimately, absolutely, forever. Take refuge in the primordial Buddha who is non-dual from your own pristine awareness. And you've got a keeper. Take refuge there. Take refuge in the teaching. And that's enough. I can take you all the way. I think in degenerate times, that's our greatest hope. And if you're exceptionally fortunate, then you'll also have the good fortune to come under the personal guidance of one of these realized masters. That's great. So, one can say, really, there's nothing more precious than taking refuge. Because that opens up the path to the path. Taking refuge in the Dharma above all. Your own Buddha nature. The Buddha, the Dharma Sangha. So, refuge is something like that. Good. Now we're going to take refuge in our cooks. They served as nutritious food. To be healthy. I think our refuge is well placed. So enjoy your meal. See you tomorrow.